Well, good morning. All right. So we're going to go ahead and uh, start the start the sermon now. So uh, welcome to uh, Restoration Road. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mark Hoxo. I'm one of the elders here at Restoration Road. So uh, glad that you can be here this morning. Uh, we're continuing our study of the book of Matthew, and we're, we're working our way through the 18th chapter. And today we're going to be looking at and studying the very final part of that chapter. And uh, this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go ahead and read uh, the, the uh, text that we have for us today, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Amen. Let me pray. Dear Lord, I just so thank you for your word and for the instruction that we receive from it. Um, I pray, Lord, that this morning you would, through your word, feed us, that you would encourage us, and that you would reveal whatever it is that you want to reveal to us through your word. And I pray this uh, through your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, well, as we've been studying uh, the book of Matthew, and particularly the last couple of chapters, or last couple of uh, Sundays, as we've been in chapter 18, and as um, we've heard through Pastor Sam, um, as he's rightly pointed out, this chapter ultimately is about Christian humility. And so we've learned uh, in this chapter about how it is that as Christians we are to be humble enough to love and trust God as a child does, and how we are as Christians also to be humble enough to love all of the other children that are in God's kingdom. And also, 
uh, we learned last week about the humility that we should have to lovingly pursue and, if necessary, confront those whom we love who are in a state of unrepentant sin. And uh, it cannot be overemphasized how vital humility is uh, in the life of a Christian. For where there's a lack of humility and a presence of pride, where pride reigns in the heart of a person, uh, it's impossible to live uh, the way Christ did and the way that he has commanded us to live. So as we examine today in this text uh, forgiveness, there's three things that uh, are important points to consider. And the first one, of course, is humility, which I've already mentioned. But as we look at humility, uh, our ability to be able to forgive others and ultimately uh, the very love for Christ himself that we have within us um, directly correlates to the extent to which we understand the burden of sin that we have been forgiven. Now, there's a this, this passage that we just read on the parable of the unforgiving servant, I think, uh, is, is a good example of that. But there's another, there's another occasion in the life of Jesus where this is uh, this point is made very well. And so I'm going to read that from Luke chapter seven, and uh, it's a little bit of a lengthy passage too. But I'm going to read the whole thing because it illustrates um, very well the point of how humility brings about a greater awareness of the greatness of Christ and the understanding of how much we have been forgiven and the, the, the load of sin that has been removed from our hearts and how that brings us to serve Jesus. And so uh, in Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36, and this is a, an occasion where Jesus had been invited to the house of a Pharisee to uh, eat with him and some other Pharisees. So it says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering him, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay... He canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, You see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. 
But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So we see a great example there of a sinner with an understanding of the depth of her sin and how much she had been forgiven. Contrasted with someone who felt like he was a pretty good person. And so the, the uh, conception in his own mind and in his own heart of what his need was for grace and what his need for mercy was, was significantly lower. The second thing, the second point to consider when we're uh, thinking about forgiveness is uh, the point of honesty. I think that in order to forgive someone who has sinned against us, we need to be honest about what it will cost us to forgive. Forgiveness hurts, not for the one being forgiven, but the one who is forgiving. Consider how much pain Jesus went through and what it cost him in order for him to secure for us our forgiveness. On the night before he was crucified, while he was praying with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, when his disciples kept falling asleep, Jesus literally sweat drops of blood in anguish as he considered what he was going to suffer in order to be able to uh, secure forgiveness for the sins of the world. There was a moment when he actually prayed to his father that if it would be possible for this cup of, of, of um, anguish and punishment, if it could be somehow removed. But he said, yet yeah, not your will, not my will be done, but your will be done. And you know it had to be bad for Jesus to even consider another possibility. When we forgive someone who has sinned against us, we too, though it's nothing compared to the suffering of Christ, we too, though, must sacrifice certain things. We must give up our right to be angry at the person who sinned against us. We have to give up bitterness and the desire to have that person suffer like we have had to suffer because of their sin against us. And we have to give up the power that we hold over that person, that we have holding them in a place of never-ending guilt and shame and misery. In a real sense, when we forgive somebody, we are loosing them from that sin instead of keeping them bound in their sin. And then finally, there's hope. When we are able to forgive someone, when we're able to just let it go and, and, and just uh, not hold it against them anymore, we are going into a place of, of hope. Uh, just as Jesus emerged victorious after experiencing the, the pain and the death of, and the suffering of the cross, by his resurrection, to secure forgiveness for us, we too can experience new life when we are obedient to forgive others. And when we do, anger melts away, 
the uh, bitterness that could have started is not allowed to take root in our hearts. Uh, love can be restored between brothers and sisters, and in the end, God is glorified. And if we had been sitting in bitterness for some time because of our unforgiveness, finally coming to a place where we can forgive someone is like uh, regaining your freedom after spending time in prison. Now, as we look at this passage here in Matthew, um, it's often taken kind of by itself um, and considered by itself uh, in isolation from the rest of the chapter that we've been studying here in, in chapter 18. Just like the last Sunday's uh, passage on church discipline is oftentimes taken by itself. But it, it must be considered as part of a, lot, a larger conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And after having instructed his disciples on how to confront someone who is uh, in sin, Peter naturally wanted to know how many times should he forgive somebody who continues to sin and repent and sin and repent and sin and repent again and again and again. Uh, the Jewish culture in which Peter had been raised taught that forgiveness was to be offered to a person three times. But the fourth time they came to ask you forgiveness, you had the right to refuse. And uh, Peter, having traveled with Jesus and spent time with him, um, he knew that Jesus was not your average rabbi. That he was somebody who displayed extraordinary compassion, grace, and love to all kinds of different uh, people that they had run across. And so I'm guessing that Peter probably figured, well, if I take the present norm of three times and I double it and I add one for good measure, that I'll bet you Jesus would find that to be acceptable, that that would be like, oh, yeah, much, much bigger grace than what, what was uh, normal for their time. Unfortunately, Peter was still believing that somehow grace and forgiveness uh, has a limit and that it was just a matter of determining exactly where that limit is. Um, but Jesus answered him and said, No, Peter, uh, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven, or in some translations say 77 times. But whether it's 77 or 490, we know that what Jesus meant was that in his kingdom, there is no limit to grace. There's no limit to forgiveness. There's no limit to the mercy that you can show one to another. And I believe he was saying that because he was going to show the world the extent to which he would go to show mercy and compassion, forgiveness and love to the sins, to the, to the sinners in this world. So, but to further illustrate the point, Jesus uh, gives to Peter and the other disciples uh, this parable. this parable of the unforgiving servant. So in this parable, Jesus uh, tells of a certain king who uh, calls up one of his servants. And this servant owes him 10,000 talents. And he calls him up to collect the debt. Now, while it's hard for us to calculate exactly how much money this would be in today's economy, just know that the point of that amount is to illustrate an amount that is enormous. It's, it's a huge amount. It's, a, it's an amount that um, would be uh, 
way more than any one person could have paid off in a lifetime or even 10 lifetimes, 50 lifetimes, 100 lifetimes. There's no way he could have been able to uh, pay that back. It was uh, read somewhere. It was like 11 years worth of taxes that this king would have collected uh, during his time in his kingdom. So it's an ex extraordinarily large amount of money. If you want to imagine a similarly large amount of money in today's, <coughs> today's world, maybe you can consider uh, the, uh, the size of the U.S. national debt. It's, it's over $18 trillion, okay? Now, so it's hard for us to wrap our, our minds around even what amount that is. But if you were to uh, consider every man, woman, and child that lives in America, and they say there's over 320 million of us, it would take over $56,000 from each one of us to pay off that amount. So it's an incredibly huge amount. But imagine if the president called you up, and so you were all of a sudden, um, there were some Secret Service uh, agents at your home, and they escort you to the White House, and you find yourself standing before the president in the Oval Office, and he says, I hope you brought your checkbook. Because this, this debt I've been looking into, it's actually your debt. You're the one who owes $18 trillion. So, did you bring the money? Now, if you, uh, well, the only thing you could do is, if that were true, is you would have to get on your knees, just like this servant did, and beg for mercy. And hopefully you wouldn't be so foolish as he was and make some sort of a promise that if you just give me enough time, I will repay it. Because, of course, you wouldn't be able to do that. The only thing you could do would be to beg for mercy. And if your president is benevolent like the king is in this parable, he will pardon your debt and he will give you your freedom. But the point is, the size of our sin debt is huge. It is much bigger than anything that we um, can imagine. It's actually bigger than the national debt, if you were to somehow, you know, quantify it in, in some sort of uh, uh, financial numeric terms. The fact of the matter is, you would sooner pay off $18 trillion in this lifetime by working hard than you would ever be able to pay off your sin debt by hard work. No amount of work that you could do would be able to even make a partial payment. So after being released of his debt in this parable of the 10,000 talents, the servant makes an incredibly poor choice. Now, he, he goes to a fellow servant. Now, it doesn't say he immediately goes to the fellow servant, though in context it looks like he does. Though I have to believe that maybe some time had elapsed. I'm looking for a way... How does this make any sort of sense at all? Someone who had been forgiven this great amount of debt would immediately go over to somebody who owes him just a, a few bucks and, and do the same thing to him that he was just released from happening to him. So it, it doesn't really say, but I, I like to think that perhaps some time had elapsed, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years. 
it doesn't make any difference because he's still totally in the wrong for doing what he does. But anyway, he goes to a fellow servant and he grabs him by the throat and demands payment of 100 denarii. Now, compared to 10,000 talents, this literally is a paltry sum. Not insignificant, but still tiny in comparison. And instead of showing him the same grace that he had just been shown, he ignores his pleas for mercy and has this poor fellow thrown into prison until the debt is paid. Now, I know it's easy to condemn this unforgiving servant. And rightfully, he should be, and he is, by the king, the very king himself, who's made aware of the situation by some other fellow servants who report to the king because they were so disturbed by what they had seen. But before you throw too many stones at this servant, ask yourself, who are you in this story? Who are you most like? And I'll give you a hint. You're not the king in this story. Uh, if anything, you're one of the two servants, right? Because there are no other characters. Well, now there might be. You might be with servants that reported the, the, it to the king. But I think that uh, any time you've been in a, in a place in this life where, where you've sinned against someone and they haven't forgiven you back, and you know that they're holding this sin against you, and then you're the second servant. You're the one who, who's experiencing that type of, of non-forgiveness. But any time that you've ever uh, experienced the sin of someone else against you, and then you haven't given them forgiveness, you have not had a heart of forgiveness toward them, you've become bitter at them because of what they did to you, then, then you're like the first servant. Now, granted, there are times in our life where it's easy to forgive someone. Primarily, that's true when the offense uh, wasn't that great, or it didn't hurt you personally, really. The biblical truth is uh, that love covers a multitude of sins. And that should be common among us. That should be our everyday experience. Because we are sinful people, and we oftentimes say the wrong thing at the wrong time. But we should also be a gracious people where we are able to overlook the sins of others and say, it's okay. I know what you meant. It's okay. I know that, you know, words don't always come out right or whatever. But uh, there are those sins which are incredibly difficult to forgive. For example, um, if, if you have a child who's being abused by somebody, uh, and it's been going on for a while, and you don't know about it, and then when you find out about it, how easy is it to forgive the perpetrator of that abuse? Now, it's humanly and from the flesh pretty much impossible. I've seen people sit in courtrooms who um, there's this uh, criminal who inflicted some hurt on a family, either because he abused somebody or because he murdered somebody. I've seen both. I've seen, I've seen the family say, I'll never forgive him. I will never forgive that person. But I've also seen others saying, I forgive him. I forgive him. What about adultery in a marriage? That's another, another uh, case where it's uh, very 
difficult for the one who is cheated on, the one who has sinned against, to, to forgive, to find it somehow uh, in their hearts to forgive. But when there's repentance especially, uh, we must forgive because that's what Jesus commands us. Now, forgiveness in these cases, just want to be clear, doesn't mean that the circumstances surrounding the relationship haven't changed. Because sometimes when there is this type of sin, uh, for example, if my child was being abused by somebody who I had trusted uh, to care for my child or to be around my child, and if I found out there had been a pattern of abuse going on, now while I may forgive him or her, I probably wouldn't let my child be there with that person. Just because I have a duty to protect my child, I have a duty to protect my family, I have a duty to protect myself. And so there are situations where circumstances change, relationships may change because of the sin. These are the consequences that sin carries, but that doesn't mean that we have a right to withhold forgiveness. Now, sometimes forgiveness takes some time. There's a process of walking through pain before forgiveness can be complete. Uh, I know this firsthand, having counseled a couple some time ago who uh, had, there had been adultery in the marriage. And it was incredibly painful for the one who was sinned against. Incredibly painful. But we encouraged her to, to forgive. And at first, it's like, I can't. And part of that was because the sinning spouse wasn't very remorseful over what had happened and certainly wasn't repentant. But in time, with um, <clears throat> consistent counseling and with lots of pain and lots of tears, uh, forgiveness did happen. But it took some months before that did happen. Um, and they're still together, which is amazing, considering what happened. So, <clears throat> oftentimes, so when there's been adultery in a marriage, um, divorce happens. And sometimes that's because the sinned against spouse absolutely will not forgive. Sometimes they will forgive. Divorce still happens because, because it's so painful. It is so painful, and um, it's just the consequence of divorce because even Jesus admitted that um, sometimes um, divorce is permissible in these cases because the covenant's been broken, because um, there's been so much hurt, so much pain, so that even though it is permissible, it's not desired, we always hope to seek for rec reconciliation even in situations like that. The scriptures are very clear about forgiveness. There's, there's, there's many passages where it is, where it is uh, very clearly taught that we are to be a forgiving people, um, forgiving one another, and being patient and loving toward one another. Um, Jesus himself in, his, uh, in the Lord's Prayer said, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But there's a few other passages I want to read. Uh, one is from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Paul says, Be kind to one another, 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Uh, Matthew uh, 6, 14 to 15, this is Jesus right after the Lord's Prayer. He says, and if you, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And Jesus says in Mark eleven twenty five, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And then in Colossians 3.13, Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So there's a real connection here. As I read these passages, there's a real connection where, where uh, the, God is saying that I will forgive you to the extent that you forgive others. So I hope you take this seriously because it is, in fact, a very, very serious issue. Paul also gives us some warnings in the Bible uh, against bitterness because unforgiveness uh, when it when it continues in a person's heart, leads to it leads to bitterness. Paul says in Ephesians 4:31, "Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice." So he says to put bitterness away, along with these other things. He says you just you put it away. We're going to talk about what that looks like. He also, or whoever wrote Hebrews, also says in Hebrews 12, 14, and 15, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, the servant who had been forgiven much was bitter toward his fellow servant instead of forgiving when he wasn't able to pay off his debt. In trying to make him pay up, he forced his fellow servant into prison, but he wound up in prison himself. Oh, what a picture Christ here paints uh, for us of our sinful human condition. This is exactly where we end up if we don't forgive each other from the heart and when we allow bitterness to take root into our hearts. We end up in a spiritual prison where we will remain until our debt is paid. In other words, where we will remain until we are able to forgive that person who sinned against us and until we are able to repent of our bitterness. And here's something I think is important. Even though it doesn't say that Servant's wife in prison went, wife and children went to prison with him the second, the second time he was headed to prison. But the first time, his wife and children were going to be sold with him. So it makes me think that, that there's, a, there's a connection there between a man going to prison and his family suffering. Because if you think about any time in our own society, anywhere in the world, in fact, when a father uh, is accused and convicted of a crime and he ends up going to prison, um, it's, you think about the wife and the children who are at home, especially if he's got little ones. 
they, they might as well go to prison with him because they're going to be in their own prison when the father of the children is gone, the husband of the wife is gone. And so um, even in this story, I, I think that uh, when this man went to prison, his wife and children were also in prison. And because it's impossible for our bitterness to affect only us. It has a way of kind of infecting everybody around us. Uh, first of all, your own family. Uh, it affects your, 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 your relationship with your, with your spouse. It affects your relationship with your children. It can extend beyond your own family, too. It can go into your workplace and infect people within your work uh, uh, group. It can also infect the people within your church. Um, I've heard of churches where a um, large part of the church is infected by bitterness that came from one person who came in and spread that bitterness. Bitterness is a poison, which Paul warns us to not let take root in our hearts. When it has, it may be difficult to see, because uh, just as roots are below the surface, that bitterness can kind of like hang out below the surface for some time. But it won't be long before it manifests itself in a person's life. Just like roots uh, from a tree can cause cracked and broken sidewalks, so does bitterness bring about brokenness, brokenness in our lives. Bitterness never just sits inside of a person. That person always wants to talk to somebody about how they were sinned against or how this happened to them. And that bitterness always comes out uh, time and time again. Eventually, a root of bitterness produces fruit that is bitter. And that's where people, um, people, a person who is bitter, uh, eventually will start to spew that bitterness out. It leads to hatred. That's what bitterness does. Bitterness leads to hatred, and hatred ultimately is what leads to murder. The thing about bitterness, the pernicious thing about bitterness, is that uh, when you're bitter, you don't see it as being sinful. You feel completely justified. It was, after all, it was that other person who sinned, not me. I'm a victim here. I'm a victim of that person's sin. You become so preoccupied with the details of the sin, that other person's sin, you review the details over and over again in your own mind until it becomes an all-consuming obsession. Now, the only way that you can do what Paul says to get in getting rid of this bitterness is to confess it as a great sin against God and repent and forgive the one who sinned against you. How can such bitterness take root in a person's heart who has been forgiven a debt of 10,000 talents. For one who has been forgiven a lifetime of their own sin and given the promise of everlasting life. As I was preparing this sermon, I ran across a little bit of wisdom, which I thought was, was um, kind of neat. It uh, went something like this. When a cup of sweet water gets jolted, not one drop of bitter water will spill. When that same cup of sweet water gets jolted even harder, only sweet water will splash out of that cup. If you have a cup of honey and it gets knocked over, only honey flows out of that cup. But 
A cup of bitter water will always only spill bitterness when it gets bumped. What's in the cup is what comes out. It's a simple, it's a simple truism, but it's, uh, it's very true. It goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. If you have humility in your heart and gratitude and thankfulness for your own forgiveness, then forgiveness and love will flow out of your heart toward others as well. Now, all of you have your own story. Some of you have been Christians for pretty much all your lives. Uh, you came to faith in Christ at a very young age. You got baptized. And you've been a believer ever since. Uh, others of you gotten saved later in life. You know, maybe it's been 20 years, though, or maybe it's been 10 years or five or, or one or less than that. Maybe it's been very recent. But perhaps if you've been a Christian for years now, you have forgotten how great of a debt that you've been forgiven. And lately, you've, you've begun to think of yourself as being a pretty good person. Uh, maybe when you were saved at a young age, you didn't really understand how great of a debt you were being forgiven. You didn't, and didn't then and, and don't now consider the debt that you got forgiven, a debt of 10,000 talents. Perhaps... It's been a while since you've even confessed any of your own sin to, to God or to anyone else. When this type of thing happens, when you start to think of yourself as being actually pretty good, you start to lean a little bit less on Jesus. You start to think that somehow he found you to be pretty clean to begin with. That's a sign that humility is being replaced by pride and and, and pride in a person's heart is what leads you to be unwilling to forgive someone else. There are so many different circumstances which lead a person to becoming bitter at another person. It's true that usually we only become bitter when someone who sins against us who is close to us. When we hear about horrible atrocities that happen uh, on the other side of the world, committed by somebody else, uh, that we don't know or have any idea who is, um, it's hard to get bitter at that person, no matter how bad their sin was. In the same way, it's true that the closer a person is to us, the easier it is for us to get bitter, no matter how small the sin. Some people will hold on to bitterness long after the offending party has died. I have heard um, of people who, uh, it might be a decade or two since their parents died, but they're still mad at their parents. They're still holding on to bitterness. And it could be something that, you know, it could have been the way that they were raised. Uh, they didn't like the way that they were raised by their parents. Or it could be that, you know, something that their parents said to them, you know, before they died. Or just because of a series of of bad things that happened throughout their life or the relationship that was broken. There's, there, is, there is that. People hold on to bitterness for years as though there remains anything to be gained by a continuing bitterness. Now, if the deceased parent were a Christian, he or she is in heaven uh, with God, enjoying perfect peace and happiness if not, if they weren't a Christian, then presumably they're somewhere else. They're in hell. 
where they're getting the perfect justice of God for a life of sin here on earth. Either way, bitterness toward them is a poison that will destroy the time that you have left on earth. Now, some people remain bitter because they haven't received a proper apology from the other or because they haven't repented of their sin. And I'll be honest with you, this is, um, this is a little bit of a, this is one of those situations where um, I struggle to understand exactly what the right, what, what exactly is right, because there's passages in the Bible that say, as we've read in this, you know, and, and in others, where it's like you just need to forgive. You just need to forgive. Then there's other passages, like there's one in Luke 17, verse 3, where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, and if he repents, forgive him. And so there seems to be a tie between repentance and forgiveness. And that's that's partly what it is. But I've come to this, um, come to this understanding. Um, whether or not the other person repents is between God and that person. Now we can remind them to repent. We can, as we learned last Sunday, uh, Sunday's passage, that when there is sin, it is incumbent on us to go and show them, that person, their sin, and encourage them to repent and to, to come back to Christ. But sometimes there is no, there's no repentance. There's like, they don't hear you. And that's when Jesus says, you are to you know, treat this person after you go through all the steps, the proper steps of taking it to the church and so forth. He says, you are to treat this person like you would a tax collector and a, and a pagan. But, so what I've come to is that what's between you and God is whether or not you will have a heart of forgiveness toward that person. Again, not because they deserve it, but because Christ commands it from you and because of the debt that you yourself have already been forgiven. Now, having a heart of humility, compassion, and love that leads to forgiveness toward you toward those who sin against you is not, is not possible through your flesh. It's only possible by the power of Christ who lives in you and through you by the Holy Spirit. The type of unconditional forgiveness that Christ commands comes only from our new nature, which is given to us when we're born again. Our old sinful nature cannot attain it, neither does it desire it. So long as we're in this body, uh, we cannot be free of the effects of our sinful flesh. And that is why we must go to the cross often to confess our sins and to remind ourselves of the forgiveness that we have received and what it costs the Son of God to achieve it for us. In this way, we maintain our intimacy with God and our fellowship with each other. John writes in his epistle, in the first epistle, uh, chapter 1, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In conclusion, I want to say that while forgiveness may not always be easy, in fact, there are times when it's incredibly difficult from a purely human perspective. It is, I believe, a mark or sign of a true Christian. You can be an expert on theology. You can know the Bible inside out and memorize many passages. You can serve your church and your community sacrificially. You can be involved in many other charitable works. But if you lack forgiveness toward the sins of others, you're missing a big part of what it means to be a Christian. You can't possibly be walking closely with God. In fact, some would say you're not a Christian at all if you don't have forgiveness toward others. It's been said that the aim of our life should be to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Few things in this life will bring God as much glory as when His children model Christ-like love and forgiveness for one another. Before He died, Christ showed us what radical forgiveness looks like when He prayed for those who were killing Him right before He died. Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen, likewise, imitating the love and the compassion of Christ, said to those who were stoning him to death, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. Now, if Christ and Stephen could have such hearts of forgiveness toward those who were killing them, is it not possible for us to demonstrate forgiveness toward those who who have heard us. So if there be any here this morning who has been harboring a heart of bitterness brought on by, by unforgiveness towards someone, I strongly, strongly encourage you this morning to let it go. And you do that by admitting that you have sinned by being bitter, by owning that sin and naming that sin and you confess it, and you repent. Then in your heart you forgive that person, and when and if possible, you communicate that forgiveness toward that person, to that person. But perhaps you are bitter because you don't even know what I'm talking about, because you haven't experienced forgiveness yourself. Maybe you still have this debt of 10,000 talents that you're still accountable for. So to you I say, go to the king. Go to our gracious king, our heavenly father, and beg for mercy, just as these servants did in this parable. Because when you beg for mercy from our heavenly king, he will pardon you. He always does. The Bible tells us that a um, a contrite heart, the Lord will not, Turn away. And so, you too then will be given a new heart and a new will which will desire to forgive and not be bitter. And so now we're going to, uh, we're going to take communion. And communion is a time where 
we, we reflect upon the goodness of Christ and upon His sacrifice for us. When we reflect upon His crucifixion, His, His passion on the cross, and also we reflect upon His death for us, and then His subsequent resurrection. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He was only dead for a few, few days, and then on the third day He rose again from the dead. That is the hope that we have, knowing that we have a risen Lord. But as you come to communion, and you're considering your own heart, and if, if, there, if there be anybody here that is like, yes, I, I, I've been bitter. I've been bitter toward my father or my mother or my brother or sister or, or someone, and I know it's sin. And if you want... Um, you can, you can. Uh, I'm going to be, st- I'm going to be right over here. And if you want to, if you want prayer or any, anything like that, I'll be available. Um, and then, then enjoy the, 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 uh, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. We know, Lord, that um, outside of your grace, outside of your love and compassion, and forgiveness for us, we would never be able to work off the the debt that we have because of our own sin and our own sinfulness. So thank you, Father, for your Son. Thank you, Lord, that, that He came and lived that perfect life, that He took on all of our sin, that He went to the cross and He paid for it. And through that, He achieved full and complete forgiveness for each and every one of us. Let us live that out in our lives, Lord. Let us be a forgiving people. Let us, Lord, always remember that the amount of forgiveness that we have to give is small in comparison to what you had to do. In Jesus' name, amen.